0: Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have with me uh, Maria Wick-Vila, who is the founder and CEO of Applicant Lab. She's also an HBS alum. And today we're going to talk all about MBA admissions and specifically what Maria is doing at Applicant Lab. There are a lot of great resources out there to get help and guidance on navigating the MBA admissions process and Maria is going to talk a little bit about how she came to found applicant lab and some of the ways in which she works with MBA applicants, like all of our listeners out there. And so I'm really grateful that Maria is here. And so Maria, first off, thank you so much for joining me on the MBA insider podcast. It's great to have you. Why don't we start with just tell us a little bit about yourself. Why did you choose to go get your MBA in the first place?
1: Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so why did I decide to go to business school? I was before business school or after college, like in that sort of, there was a five-year period between those two. I was working in international strategy for a television company. So specifically, I worked in pay TV. So we were the people who were trying to launch like direct TV or cable companies, first in Latin America, and then I was in Asia. And the media industry at the time, this is not to date myself, but this was almost 20 years ago, (laughs) but at the time, the media industry was not one that really valued the MBA. It was not seen as a requirement. If anything, sometimes MBAs were viewed with suspicion because the entertainment industry is one that really values creativity and artistic ability and that sort of mindset. And so it was not necessarily a, a foregone conclusion that I was going to apply to business school. But what ended up happening was that I, and I never thought I would actually those first couple of years, but then I ended up reaching this kind of this, I don't want to call it a ceiling, but I think instead the word I'll use is a pigeonhole. So I was working in the strategy group. And so I was building these financial models to try to figure out, should we do a merger? Should we acquire another company? Should we launch our own version of a company? And so I found myself becoming like the Excel girl and it was great like those first couple years i was learning so much and building these financial models was a really fun intellectual exercise but after a while i started thinking like but yeah i can i think i can do a lot more than just just the math i feel like i can contribute a lot more and when i started trying to get involved i started trying to dip my toe a little into like marketing or some of the other departments it was not taken well it was not viewed i was not welcome (laughs) in some of those other departments. And my boss was like, look, it's, they probably think that you're going to try to take their jobs. So anyway, at that point, I thought, wow, this is, I want to develop this external credibility that I am good at more than just numbers. And I think that was the initial spark in my head. And so then I spent some time interviewing a lot of people in my industry, people who had the sorts of jobs. I said to myself, okay, given where I am right now, what job do I want 15, 20 years from now. And so I started reaching out to some of those people. And and luckily, some of them were kind enough to get back to me. And some of them didn't have MBAs and said it's a big waste of time. But some of them did. And when I talked to them, the reasons that they gave for getting the MBA seemed, they, they made a lot of sense to me. It, basically, the argument was if for a fact that you are going to be employed at this company for the next 20 years and you're never going to go anywhere else, then yeah, maybe you should just stay here. But in case you need an insurance policy, in case you, for example, take time off to raise a family, or if for whatever reason we end up laying off a, t- a bunch of people and you get caught up in those layoffs, having an MBA can be an excellent insurance policy in a situation like that because you will have this external credit or this thing that you can show people to say, look, no, I really am good at a bunch of things and you won't be as pigeonholed and you will be able to land on your feet much better. So that was the first argument that really resonated with me. And then the second one was I started thinking like, okay, if even if I stay here, it was a common path where in the strategy group, you would work on a bunch of deals. And then eventually after say 10 years, You would work on a new business launch, and then the person in the strategy group would then get to go run that business. And I saw some people follow that path, and I saw some of them struggle a little, or like once you, when you're in the strategy group, you have this, like, here's what your job is. And then when you move into being a general manager now all of a sudden there's stuff like marketing that you have to think about and operations that you have to think about and i thought to myself even if i even if i do end up staying at this company and in this role for the next 20 years i don't want to be put in a position where i finally get to lead a division and then i fall flat on my face (laughs) so i said to myself okay if i get the mba obviously that's no guarantee of anything but at least i'll have this formal education in, that I can fall back on, and at least I'll have a general management perspective. So should I then get to that position that was at that time the position I thought I wanted, I will at least not make a complete fool of myself. And so th- those two arguments together were the reason I eventually did choose to go to business school, even though it really was not at all necessary in my field at the time.
0: So I don't want to lead the witness here too much, but was that tenor, did that 10 or 15-year vision of what you want it to be. Is that where you are today? And if not, what is it that you are doing today? Oh,
1: of course it's not where I am today. <laughs> I think this is true for a lot of people who, who go to business school. I some people apply with okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna apply with a, a, a pretty riskless An unrisky career vision in order to help uh, my chances of getting in, which, by the way, is something I completely advocate and agree with. But I was sincere. Like, I really planned. I wrote this in my essays and I planned it the day I set foot on campus. I was going to go back to my pre-MBA employer. I, I completely was sold on this company. I loved working there. I really loved it. And then a couple of things happened. First of all, the department that I had been working for was essentially dissolved in the two years that I was there. A whole bunch of stuff went down. A lot can happen in two years, it turns out. And so my job was did, either didn't exist or if I wanted it really badly, I would have had to move to India to take it. Which was something I had been based in India for a few months. And I was like, I don't know. I met the person who is now my husband in business school. So I was like, oh, I don't know what I want to. I don't know. He's living in LA. I don't know that I want to move to India. Not necessarily the best way to start a marriage. <laughs> so, first of all, that job that I planned to go back to ceased to exist. But also, more than that, I think in business school, one of the cool things about it is that you meet so many people who have done so many cool things, people from the pharmaceutical industry, from the energy industry, from, I had a section mate who was from the beer industry. You have people from all over. And so as you start talking to them, you start thinking, huh, what is it I really want to do? And not just in terms of the industry that I want to be in, but what is it functionally that I want to do? And then even beyond that, what is it that I want my life to look like. So in business school, I actually took an elective, an entire class, an entire semester elective that was devoted to, it was called self-assessment and career development. And it was really devoted to, on some level you could snicker at it and say, oh, it's a bunch of navel gazing. But I actually found the class to be transformative. I It really made me focus on who am I? What is my personality? What energizes me? And so that was when I started thinking about entrepreneurship in a more general sense. And before that, if you would have said to me my first day of business school, Maria, one day you're going to be interested in entrepreneurship, I would have laughed at you. I would have been like, are you kidding me? Do you know? There's no way I'm going to ever take a risk like that. But through the process of business school, I started getting interested in entrepreneurship. So after business school, I combined my pre-MBA experience with my burgeoning interest in entrepreneurship. And I went to work for a startup that was selling technologies into television companies. So now I was on the other side of the table. I was now a vendor. Selling in these technological advances to TV companies, and so that was pretty cool. And then after that, the the 2008, 2009 recession happened, and also the iPhone launched, which pretty much made this company that I was working for obsolete, kind of in a month, (laughs) sadly, because we were building apps for the pre-iPhone phones, and it was it was really hard to do that because the phones had the pre-iPhone phones had like no memory and very. Very tiny screens with limited color palettes, and so we, this company that I was working for, had done a bunch of really cool stuff to build neat apps, uh, so that you could watch like slideshows and videos on a on an old phone in the 2005, 2006, 2007 era. And then when the iPhone came out, it was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so I, I lost my job, but that's when I ended up uh, eventually moving to create what is today Applicant Lab.
0: Yeah. And that's a great segue. So tell us about it. Where did it come from? What is it? How did it get started? Tell us more.
1: Yeah, sure. So when I was in business school, one of the extracurricular activities that I I really threw myself into was volunteering with the admissions office to try to put on, to try to enhance or increase the number of underrepresented applicants who were applying. I was really passionate about this in part because I'm a public school kid. My parents were public school teachers. I did not come from a lot of, of money. And also I wanted to increase the diversity at HBS, socioeconomically, ethnically, a whole, across a whole bunch of dimensions. I was, I wanted to increase the diversity. Yeah. And also I had almost not applied to HBS because I was like, there is no way I'm getting into Harvard. <laughs> And so I thought, wow, how many other people are out there who think the same thing, who aren't even trying to apply? So I started working with the admissions office. And one of the things I was doing with them, this was a volunteer position. I was not an official employee of admissions, but it was, there were a couple of student volunteers and things we would do would be, for example, we would put on weekend events for prospective students to come visit the campus, and we would say, it's more welcoming than you think it is here, and people are actually really friendly, hey, think, you think about it, think about applying. And so in the course of those events... I would, during the course of those weekends, I would meet people who were in fact applying and they would say, oh, I'm really stressed about these essays and I don't know what to do. And I love to write and to edit. I've always, in college, I was on the humor magazine at business school. I was actually the... I don't only write humor, but but I love to write and to edit. And I even in business school, I was a writer and editor for the, the campus newspaper at business school. So I was like, oh, my God, writing and editing is my favorite. So why don't you just send me your essays and I'll try to help you? And so what happened as a result of that is that while I was in business school, I started meeting people who were applying and I would help them. And then those people, even after I graduated, a year later, I I would get these random emails. Hey, you helped my friend get into Kellogg last year. Hey, my name is my cousin said that you were really helpful. And, And so basically during the day, for the first few years after business school, during the day, my day job was at this startup, at these various startups. But then on like nights and weekends, I would say, oh yeah, I'd love to, oh, of course I remember her. I'd love to help you too. And I was doing it completely for free. It was, I just, it was a giving back type of thing that I was really into. And so, what happened is that when the iPhone came out and pretty much destroyed the company that I was working for, a whole bunch of things happened at once. There was a recession, so I, it was hard for me to find a new job. I discovered I was pregnant, which is also something that may that sometimes hinders one ability to get a new job. And this was like in the fall uh, of two thousand and nine and i was i had a really rough for not to get into too but yeah i had a rough first trimester uh in my pregnancy as many people do and so i like i couldn't move from the couch (laughs) i was just like sleeping all day and i and it was the season it was it started becoming admission season and i started once again getting emails and emails from people like hey i my friend told me about you and i was like i can't i just can't right now i am physically incapable (laughs) of responding to these emails And what happened is that I I had this aha moment where I started emailing people and I would say, look, I can't move from the couch right now, but I actually worked with someone a couple years ago who was exactly like you and here's the advice I sent her four years ago so let me just forward you like all of the advice and you can apply it to yourself and that was like for me this aha moment of wait a minute yes every candidate is different and everyone has their own unique story to tell but the principles of what makes for a strong application what makes for a good story how do you take the experiences that you've had and position them in a way that is compelling for admissions readers those principles are actually pretty similar from candidate to candidate even candidates who have had wildly different experiences so that was my first moment of oh my gosh i don't necessarily have to be getting on the phone with people over and over again why? What if I create a digital product that basically emulates, or basically just yeah, basically imitates what I do when I talk to people? But instead of me having to talk to them over and over again, it's it's through an online platform, and that's how the idea for Applicant Lab was born. And uh, yeah, so what it is, what Applicant Lab is today is it's exactly that. It's basically. I challenge myself to think about, okay, if I were to be sitting down with someone like a traditional admissions consultant, and if I were to have 15 or 20 hours with them, what would I say? What's the first step I would have them do? What would I say? Don't do this. What would I say? Definitely do this. And so in a nutshell, that's what Applicant Lab is. It's an online platform where you, it's a series of online exercises and videos and hints and tips. And really what I've done is I've created, I think you applied to business school. So you, I don't know if you experienced this, but these essays and the overall process is a little bit overwhelming. You don't know what all, every school seems to have slightly different essays and you need these recommendations and it's, whoa, it's a lot of stuff. And so what I do is I break down that very scary and gray area process. And I'm like, look, just here's a bunch of steps. Just follow the steps and you're going to build your application. Uh, I ask people to trust in me because I have a few early steps that at first you might say, I don't know where this is going, Maria. I thought this was supposed to be an essay tool. And why are we not dealing with essays right away? It's because I build towards what's going to create the foundation for your essays. But so yeah, it's basically all the advice that I would give you if I were meeting with you for hours and hours, but it's done digitally through an online tool.
0: Thank you for uh, sharing that. And a couple of things I wanted to hit on. So number one, what resonates with me and and why why I wanted to bring you on was number one, I think that your process for coming up with Applicant Lab, right? Like it wasn't necessarily a lightning in a bottle. That's something that struck. I think that it was one of the things that I heard you say and something that I encourage people both applying to business school or just in general is that if people keep telling you're good at something, that's something you should pay attention to. Sure, like you need to like what it is that you're doing. If everyone tells you you're really good at spreadsheets and you don't want to do spreadsheets, okay, like different story. But if people tell you you're good at something and you like doing it, I think that's a really great data point to explore the curiosity a little bit further, which you clearly did by founding a company. And the other thing that really resonated with me is that what you said about just the MBA admissions process and just how overwhelming it can sometimes be I, both my parents have MBAs. I worked at Deloitte where a lot of people have MBAs. It was still hard for me. And I had so many built in resources at my disposal, which made a huge difference and helped me get into business school. And I just am always very empathetic to know that even with all of that, it was still hard. And so I can only imagine what it must be for others out there who don't have that luxury, and that was one of the reasons why I, I had reached out to you in the first place. Because similarly with how I founded MBA School, there weren't a lot of people at the time who were really talking in a in an authentic way about why did they chose to come to business school or, or what business school was actually like. And if you're someone who is where business school is just not on that radar, it's hard for you to really understand and really make sense. More if you can't see someone who you resonate with who. Um, has done that, I think it just puts up other barriers. And that was one of the, my, you know, kind of reasons why I was really interested in in founding something like this. But also when I saw what you were doing, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on is because I I think that's, I think that's super, I think that's super important. So those were two things that really stuck out to me as you were, as I was learning about more of your story.
1: Um, Yeah. And first of all, that's, yeah, the, what you're doing is great because it's once you get into business school, you think, ah, it's over now I can relax. (laughs) <laughs> right? And then you actually get to business school and you're like, oh my God, there's a lot to do here. There's like classes and recruiting and how do I even prioritize? So uh, I think you're filling a really valuable a valuable space In there's a void. There's so much focus on get in. I just have to get in. I just have to get in. And then, oops, well, actually now you're just starting. I think yeah. that your process is just beginning.
0: Totally. Sorry, yeah, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say to your point of if people tell you're good at something, it's actually, it reminded me of the fact that I had been working with someone who right soon after I had figured out or found out that I had lost my job, And he was like, I don't know what your old day job was. Cause I didn't really talk about my real job with people. He's like, I don't know what your old day job was, but whatever it is, you should stop that and do this for money. (laughs) And I was like, oh, and he's like, I can't believe he's, cause this particular person had gotten into Wharton. He's like, I got into Wharton basically for free and like, what you should be charging for this. Right. And that, and actually, so before I even started applicant lab, I had first started thinking of, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should join one of those big admissions consulting firms or Maybe I should start my own big consulting firm and it wouldn't be named after me because my name is complicated and not very catchy. Sure. <laughs> so it can't be like Wick and associates. Oh, that's a nightmare. But, but when I started looking at I was like, okay, maybe I will do this for a living. Let me start digging into the industry. And when I started seeing what people were charging for their time, I understand why they charge so much. They need to be compensated. And many admissions consultants have MBAs themselves. And it's If they're not going to be working in corporate America, making a six-figure salary, they need to figure out some way to do it. So I don't begrudge sure. them for charging what they charge. I get it. But I was also like, oh, I don't know. Wouldn't it make me a bit of a hypocrite if me this from humble background beginnings, if I then turn around and I start charging people $300 an hour, when I myself would not have been able to afford that before business school. So there was like this moral, (laughs) like it was not, I I did not jump into it enthusiastically. I was like, oh, this does not feel, this does not feel great to me. Sure. Um,
0: Sure. No, I totally understand that. And I guess uh, a great follow-up to that is with Applicant Lab, how do you differentiate? I think the obvious one that jumps out to mind is that you've built a platform and a technology product, so that certainly jumps out for sure. But could you talk a little bit more just about what you offer and and how it does differentiate maybe from some of the other very well intentioned and other offerings that are out there from other admissions consultants and the-
1: Yeah, sure. So I, like I said, I I, tr- I really try to take all of the advice that I can think of and I put it I try to break it out. I've got like a to-do list and then I've got like a brainstorming tool to help you try to think of what stories might be good to talk to use you in your essays or interviews. So I basically I try to think about everything that someone might need when they're applying. And by the way, I get feedback all the time like Applicant Lab where it is today is a much better product. Obviously, every can always be improved. (laughs) Anyone who's an entrepreneur will be the first to say that, oh man, there's so many things I want to improve, but where it is today is much stronger, a much better product than where it was a few years ago because people would email me and say, look, you've got all this focus on essays. You don't have anything on the admissions forms themselves. And those are a little complicated. I was like, oh my gosh, you're totally right. So then I added in a module on admissions forms, right? So a lot of the content that's there today it started as me trying to think of everything I could think of, but then over the years, people will email me back and they'll say, you was really missing this one thing. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll add that in tomorrow. Thank you so much. So it's a really very comprehensive tool to really break down. For example, some of the highlights are at the beginning, there's a sort of a snapshot module where you enter in some very basic information about yourself and it will come back at you with a not. Not what, not a true prescription for your application, but the idea is, what's that snapshot initial gut feel reaction that I think an admissions officer will have when they first encounter your profile? So, for example, if somebody is a software engineer and the admissions officer sees that, there's going to be an initial gut reaction of, okay, I know what software engineers do. I know what they do and I know that there's some cool parts about being a software engineer and there's some uncool parts about being a software engineer. And so there's, I I try to let people know, like there is going to be, because admissions officers are pattern matching much the way that VCs pattern match when they try to find companies to invest in, when they first encounter these kind of superficial aspects of your profile, there's going to be a gut reaction there. And if the gut reaction is for the things that are positive, great, double down on those things. But if there's any sort of negative immediate gut reaction to anything from your profile, that's sign to you that you need to proactively address whatever that perceived weakness might be, whether it's a low GPA or whether it's working in a specific field or a specific function. So that's one of the modules. I also have a brainstorming module for stories because a lot of people sometimes say, oh, I've heard that leadership is so important, so important to be a leader, but oh, Maria, I've never actually formally led anything. Like I'm not technically in charge of anyone. I don't have any direct reports. So am I screwed? And I'm like, no, you're not. You might've shown leadership in other ways. So I have a whole brainstorming module where I try to get you to think Think about maybe times that you have been a leader even if you were not officially the leader of something and then yeah i break down all of the essay questions for the top sort of 20, 25 programs i, I break them down i analyze them i give you step-by-step guidance on what to say and what not to say by really breaking down the questions into, if a big, question is big and scary, I'll break it down into mini questions. So I'll say, okay, let's take the big scary question out of our heads and instead just answer this one little question for me. Okay, and then answer this other little question for me. And then if you answer all of the little questions, it can help you say, oh my gosh, I actually have a bunch of ingredients now, a bunch of elements that I can now shift around and move together that form the foundation for the answer to this essay question that originally seemed so daunting. So yeah, so I've got that, I've got a resume module, I've got an interview module, I've got some advice for recommendations. So that's pretty much what the product covers. And so I think some of the benefits of applicant lab is first of all, the most obvious one is the price. I I tend to price it at, my goal has been to not have to raise the price above what the average admissions consultant charges for one hour of their time. And it's been tempting to make it a higher price sometimes because occasionally some people do say, oh, why don't you have a customer service person to answer your emails? And I'm like, because then I'd have to hire someone and that person would cost money. And if that person costs money, I'd have to raise my prices. And so I'm not comfortable with that right now because I've set this goal or as part of my mission to make the product itself never cost more than an hour of another admissions consultant's time. So the price is the obvious first one that sort of hits people when they first encounter the product, but there are a number of other benefits as well. One is that since it's an online product, you don't have to set up an appointment with me. And then like with other traditional admissions consultants, you have to go back and forth maybe, or find a time on their calendar that's open. And what if they're only working during your business hours and you're working... 15 hours a day, maybe you are you are a consultant, a management consultant, and you don't have a ton of time during the business day, but you have time at 10 o'clock at night or you know three in the morning. And so since Applicant Lab is available online whenever, if you want to jump in for 10 minutes to read an article during your lunch break, or if you want to power through all of the advice in a week, it's really flexible for people who have schedules that may not allow them to to set up appointments with other consultants, if they have very demanding jobs where, you know, they just want to try to power through everything very quickly. It's great. Here it is. Here it is. (laughs) Knock yourself out. So that time flexibility is one of the other benefits. And I think there are a lot of different ways that someone could use Applicant Lab. So a lot of people use it and it's the only thing they use. It's the only real resource that they utilize and they use it start to finish and they use, they do nothing else and that's all they use. There are some people who use it and they say, I still, I want some additional, I want some extra help. And so if they want that extra help, they can either go with someone on my team. I have a bunch of former applicant lab users who have now graduated from business school who had, since they know what my product advice is and they know what the process is themselves. Now they're providing low cost, they're providing services at a lower cost than what other admissions consultants charge admissions firms charge in part because I don't take as big of a the other firms take a 50% commission. So if you're paying another firm four hundred dollars or three hundred and fifty dollars for an hour of someone's time, the firm itself usually takes about fifty percent. So I'm taking a lot less I'm like, oh whatever, I'll take whatever 10%, 15%. And so I don't charge instead of charging a huge cushion to make a bunch of a a lot of profit off of those services because the services are not my primary product i'm not trying to make a huge profit off of them so i offer those services for a lot less but even if you don't want to work with me or with someone on my team no problem many people use the lab in conjunction with some other admissions consultant uh, and you can do that in a number of ways number one You can, uh, a lot of other admissions consultants will offer things like a two-hour package or a three-hour package. And so you could use the lab plus instead of buying like a one-school comprehensive package, those those prices tend to start at around $4,500. Instead of buying one of those big $4,000 packages, $5,000 packages, you just buy a few hours of someone else's time. You go through the lab and then say, okay, here's my stuff. Just give it a quick once over. There are other people who buy a one-school package from another consultant and then use Applicant Lab to get through all their other schools, and then there are some people who indeed have purchased like the 10000 twelve thousand dollar packages from other consultants. But then they're like, "Huh, I'm putting a lot. I'm putting a lot of investment in this one consultant. Maybe I should for what's an extra, you know, three hundred and fifty bucks to just." verify that the advice, like if the advice that I'm getting from the consultant and the advice in applicant lab are similar, then I feel more comfortable. So I've actually had some people reach out to me and say, I just bought it as almost an insurance policy to double check, almost like a se- getting like a second opinion from a doctor. And I was like, okay, that's, I wouldn't say that's very common, but I have had people reach out to me and say, that's what they did. And I'm like, great. I'm glad I could be helpful.
0: Thank you for breaking that down, and part of the reason why I am glad you talked through that is because a couple of things. Number one, one I think that there are two problems that happen in the in kind of the prospective MBA journey space when it comes to applications. On one hand, there is too much and too much information and resources that are out there, but on the other hand, there are too few people. those resources are getting to so there's this weird bifurcation of yes like you can type mba application advice into google and get lots and lots of different answers but the actual access to being able to get the real benefits of that information don't always are not always accessible to all people and so one of the things that struck me about applicant lab is that in some ways it helps thread the needle on some of that in terms of getting it out there to the widest range of people but also making it actually accessible and usable. So that's number one. But to your point, I, I think if we go back to our one economics 101 class, competition allows consumers to have choice. And as you just outlined, there's nothing that's precluding someone from using what you have at Applicant Lab and also, as you said, going to an admissions consultant that maybe they they trust or, or, or vice versa. And what I do really appreciate is that because your product is differentiated, it does give people a diversity of options that can help with them. I think what sometimes is hard, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this, is, is figuring out what's best for you, right? Like, how I would love to maybe hear from your perspective from the fact you've worked with lots of candidates over the years. How do you figure out, should I hire a, an admissions consultant? Yeah. Or, or should I use applicant lab or should I use both or, and then obviously also all the other great resources that are out there that could make sense like GMAT club or mm-hmm. beat the GMAT or obviously like the schools themselves and things like that. Just as we think about just these ecosystem in general of all this advice that's out there, like how do you, how does an applicant kind of make sense of all of this?
1: Yeah. So like you said, there's an overwhelming number of Blog posts and message board posts, and you could easily go down a rabbit hole of okay, I'm going to read these 50 blog posts about the Harvard Business School essay, and and so yeah, it can get just that process alone can get really overwhelming. What's interesting sometimes people say there's Maria, there's a lot of blog posts out there about a lot of these other admissions consultants will do like a blog post on how to tackle a certain essay, and so what we why should I pay for the advice in applicant lab. And the difference is that when other admissions consultants put a blog post with advice, yes, they have a a good motive, right? They do want to share some information. But they are never going to put everything they know into the free blog post. Because if they did that, then no one would have any reason to hire them uh, and pay them for their services. So the blog posts that you may find check to see who put out the blog post and ask yourself, Is are they trying to sell me on something? Is, is there a motive for them to be providing this information? So I, I find that a lot of the blog posts will have some nuggets of good things. But at the end of the day, again, I don't blame the admissions consultant. They're not going to give away everything. They're not going to tell you all of their secrets because then you wouldn't hire them. So their goal is and I don't play, it's per it makes a lot of sense. Let's give a little bit of information so that we show that we know what we're talking about, but not everything because we still want people to hire us. And so one thing that I try to do in Applicant Lab, or at least my goal is to put, I put everything I can think of on the table because once you've already paid for the software, I'm like, great, here's literally everything I can think of. So my advice inside the lab is Instead of, say, a 500 or 1,000 word blog post, for some schools, I have, like, many videos, and I really break it down. So that's one of the things, that exact sort of problem that you mentioned, where there's this overwhelming amount of just advice, free advice everywhere scattered around. I'm trying to consolidate that uh, a little bit. Now, in terms of who... Like, where should people go for advice? I think you mentioned GMAT Club. I think GMAT Club is a great resource. One of the things that for me sets GMAT Club apart from other sort of message board types of of sites is that GMAT Club actually has moderators who are moderating the various message boards. And so the good news there is that if somebody posts something that is just completely like 100% fake Totally way off base. Oftentimes the moderators at, at GMAT Club can jump in and say, eh, not really, you know, don't really think that's appropriate or don't really think that's true. And so I do feel that they are there are a lot of message boards out there, but I feel like GMAT Club does the best job of it's not a completely unmoderated wild west of speculation. And one of the problems sometimes with message boards is that you get other applicants giving you advice and you're like, well, so what do you know? Oh, well, I'm applying too. And it's like, okay, so you don't entirely know. Or you might get occasionally someone who graduated from an MBA program or is attending one. And so they might know a little bit, but just because they got into business school is not quite the same thing as helping somebody else get in. I've had my wisdom teeth removed, for example, but that doesn't mean that I could remove someone else's wisdom teeth. Just because you've gone through something yourself successfully doesn't necessarily make you an expert in what it takes to to do it successfully. And I have seen, I have seen on some message boards, some real damaging speculation from time to time, right? There was one the other day of, oh, if you have a below a 3.0, you're never getting in GPA, you're never getting into any school. And in fact, like some of the top programs like Booth, for example which is one of the top programs like no they publish it they take people with two eights or lower sometimes so it's it just people get fired up and they start to speculate on information or for example one going on the saying on the gpa topic some people once were, were posting someone sent me a post that was that because they were concerned they were applying to i think it was nyu and this particular client was like, oh, my gosh, according to this message board post, I'm never getting into Stern because I have a 2.9 and I'm freaking out about this. And the reality is I actually it's, it's so with that particular report, what Stern was saying was here are the people who ended up enrolling this year. And it turns out that no one who enrolled had below a 2.9, but they had, in fact, accepted people with below a 2.9 who had gotten into the program and for whatever reason had decided not to go. And that was my gut. And I actually reached out to someone I knew on the admissions staff at Stern. And I was like, this seems weird to me. Is this what's happening? And he was like, yeah, no, we totally accept people with below a 3.0. It just so happens that this is like a freak year where for some weird coincidental reason, like none of those people enrolled. And so when you look at the the class profile, you might think that you don't have a chance if you have less than a 3.0, but in fact, you totally do. It's just that it was like a weird, it's just a weird freak of nature type of thing that happened this year. So that's an example of something that's really damaging because if somebody reads that completely uninformed message board post and they have a 2.9 or a 2.8 or lower, they're going to say, I'm not even going to bother applying to Stern when in fact they should totally apply to Stern. So those are the sorts of things that I would really caution people when it comes to, to message boards, to try to stick to the ones that have have some sort of moderation or who have maybe a lot of, of members who are jumping in with knowledge. So you, you had another question. Your second question was who should go with one of these more concierge leveled admissions consultants versus applicant lab? Look, I will be the first to admit, and I say it on the website and I say it to people who email our support inbox (laughs) because I man the support inbox because we don't have a customer service team. Like I said before, I I will be the first to say, look, this is not a product for everyone. I I fully admit that. And so I think one way to, to ask yourself, is this the right product for me is first of all, when you think about, for example, how you've been studying for the GMAT or the GRE, did you do an online course, say a Magoosh, and were you able to motivate yourself to go through all of their different lessons? And if, if you are a self-motivated enough person to go through the lessons yourself and you have that discipline that you don't need a coach sort of calling you and being like, okay, all right, it's, I haven't heard from you in three weeks. What's going on? If you need someone to be constantly like on your case, for example, to get things done. Yeah, look, the lab will send, I have this these things where it'll send these automated emails like, you haven't logged in for two weeks, what's going on? Or it'll send a few little automated things. There's no person who's going to be checking up on you and saying, all right, you need to get this done by Thursday. So if you need that person to be pushing you, then you may want to hire a, a coach. Another type of person is sometimes people are like, okay, if I have questions as I go through applicant labs, I wanna email you guys every single time I have a question. And I'm like, look, you can totally email our support inbox with questions. We answer questions all day long. But if you start asking a lot of questions that are answered in the lab, I am gonna say, look, this is already answered. It's in this section. And then if beyond that, you're like, no, I still wanna ask the same question. I just want, I want you to tell me the answer instead of me reading it or looking it up myself, that's probably not a good fit. Because it's very clear, like, this is a self-automated DIY platform. That's how it's intended to be used. Happy to answer questions as they come up. Like I said before, I spend several hours a day manning the support inbox. But if you're not a self-starter and if you really want someone to be guiding you through every single thing you do and you want that sort of affirmation from a live person, then yeah, you may benefit from working instead with uh, a profet- an expensive traditional admissions consultant, but realize, of course, that you have to then be prepared to compensate that person for their time and for their expertise.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really good way to break down for people the best ways based off of kind of their own learning styles, as well as ways of working to figure out what's the right approach for them and to your point again going back to marketing 101 you can't be everything to everyone and so i think the fact that you're very being very clear and upfront about what works or what's going to the type of uh, candidate that's going to work best for applicant lab i think that makes i think that makes a ton of sense at least to me maria maybe last question here as we think about this mba admissions and application season obviously it's a little bit different than, than maybe in years past, but also maybe at the end of the day, like there's still some similarities between this year and the past year. Anything you want to add just in terms of anything unique that you've been seeing just from the students that are coming through your applicant lab and, and what's bubbling up or what's resonating based off of either what people are actually doing within applicant lab or just the, the volume of customer support requests that you're getting. What's, what are maybe like a, a couple of things that are coming, to, are coming up as key trends?
1: Yeah. Wait, is there a pandemic happening? I had maybe is, is, has something is something weird been happening in 2020? Yeah, I hadn't right. noticed. No, absolutely. It's yeah. Look, it has been a crazy year for admissions, right? Mm-hmm. It has been. So first of all, it started. So when COVID really started hitting the U.S. hard in March, that is normally when a lot of the schools have their round three deadlines. So for folks who might be new to this process, you can usually apply to business schools once per year. And they, but they give you different deadlines in which you can hit. So if you want to know early, as soon as possible, you can apply in round one, or you can, which is normally around sort of September, October, you can apply in round two, which is usually January, or you can apply in round three, which is usually March and April. So when COVID really hit the U.S. hard in March, that was around the time when a lot of schools would have their round three deadlines. And they realized, oh, my gosh, this is a great opportunity for us as a school because suddenly a bunch of people who had stable jobs or were on a career path that they liked, unfortunately, many people either lost their jobs or they were furloughed or they started getting afraid that they were going to lose their jobs. And so whenever that happens, business schools start to see a huge uptick in interest because people think, okay, first of all. I thought my career was going well and that I didn't need the MBA, but oof! now that things are tough, I actually maybe I could benefit from having that credential. And also, if the economy is going to be a complete mess for the next year or two until a vaccine comes out or whatever, maybe it's not a bad idea to shelter myself away at school for those two years and then emerge in 2022 or 2023 when hopefully things will be things will be a much it'll be a much different and let's all hope let's all hope and pray it'll be a better place. So there was this enormous all of this the most of the major schools said, "You know what? Our round 3 deadline used to be April 1st, but now it's July first or June 1st or something like that." And so suddenly all these people who all of a sudden were interested in getting an MBA who were not interested in it before they had a place to go. They had an outlet to go. They were like, oh, okay, I can apply. Okay, this, the deadline's been extended. And also simultaneously, a, a number of schools made the GMAT or the GRE test optional, which as you may remember, that's a, it's a huge part of the application process. It's a big source of stress and time. And But hey, if you think of it from an admissions officer's perspective, if you find out in March that you've been laid off and you wanna apply for a June deadline, it's gonna be really hard for anyone who's human to do both a GMAT and write the essays and do all that stuff in like the course of a month or two. So this, a lot of the schools dropped the GMAT requirement also in part because the testing centers were closed and the online test was at first, there was no online GMAT and anyway, it was a huge mess. So basically what happened is that there was an enormous influx of people in round three, which is normally a dead zone. Then those a lot of those same people who might've started thinking about the MBA in round three, but maybe just didn't make the deadlines, then a lot of those people were shifted to round one. So a, a bunch of people, I'm seeing people who, let's take a, I don't know, like a, a, hospitality, right? People who work in hospitality and travel. People who work in those industries tend to love what they do, and they don't often need MBAs because if you work at a place, I don't know, Hilton or Delta Airlines, maybe you've got, you're on a really good corporate path, and so maybe you don't need that MBA. But all of a sudden, when the airline is has zero goes from having hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue to basically zero revenue overnight, now you've got all these people who are suddenly thinking about the MBA. So there has been a couple of things. Number one, an enormous influx of people who are interested in the degree mostly domestic, mostly US domestic. Simultaneously, there was actually a bit of a downturn in international applicants because of a couple of things. Number one, I think international applicants were worried that even if I get in, if I'm not allowed into the country, a year from now, hmm, maybe that might be tough. And also at the time in the spring, there was this sort of ongoing anti-immigrant rhetoric that was going on. So I I think that now with a change in U.S. administration, I that will hopefully be a little bit more immigrant friendly. My hope is that then more international students will now feel more comfortable in applying for next year. But anyway, overall there was a huge upsurge or up surge or uptick in applications. So that's piece one. So right off the bat, even if there's the same number of this isn't even econ 101, this is like math 101. Uh, If there's a huge increase in the number of people who are applying, but the number of seats available stays the same, that it's going to become more competitive. Then add into the fact that some programs let people defer for a year, right? A number of people who were supposed to start business school in the fall of 2020 said, whoop, hold on, if it's going to be online, I don't know, that's quite the experience I want. And so a number of people got cold feet. And so they either deferred their applications for the schools that let them defer, and other schools did not let them defer, but they did. They said that we won't let you defer, but just reapply next year and put yourself back into the applicant pool. So for the schools that did allow deferrals, m- now there, are, there may be fewer seats for many of them. So not only are there more applicants, but there may be fewer seats because some of next year's seats might already be taken, might already be spoken for. Or for the schools that didn't allow deferrals, they have people reapplying this year who already got in. And one would hope that the school, unless they're being jerks, <laughs> one would hope that if you already got into the school last year, that they would you would have a pretty good chance of getting in this year. So for most schools, it's actually it, current applicants are being squeezed both from the supply and from the demand side of things. Oh, I did bring it back to Econ 101, huh? And so they're getting squeezed. And so this is, I think this is without a doubt, the most competitive year. Certainly, I think since I've been doing it, maybe in 08, 09, when that recession hit about 10, 11 years ago, that was also a rough time. But I felt that it was, that recession was more concentrated in financial services and real estate. Yeah, the recession did hit everyone eventually, but it was like a huge ax falling on just one section (laughs) Of the economy at first, so there was like a flood of people from finance and real estate and anything having to do with mortgages at first we saw them rush ahead at first and then other people followed in this one it's almost like the hammers fell for a lot of different industries all at once I, I think it is I think this is a a particularly difficult year the only school that so far will not is not going to have fewer seats, as far as I know, is a Harvard Business School. They have said they let 200 students defer and they have announced that for the next two years, they will allow about 100 students extra that are going to increase the class size to make up for another in order for those the same amount of seats to be available for this year's applicants and next year's applicants, which is a nice thing for them to do. I have a feeling other schools might have no choice but to follow suit. But anyway, yeah, it's been super competitive and I I feel so bad for people who maybe have been planning to apply to business school for four years and this was finally the year and they just, oh man, they got hit over the head unexpectedly with this pandemic, which has just been horrible for so many people on so many levels, but this is yet one other (laughs) really negative impact, unfortunately, of COVID.
0: Yeah, no, and thank you for breaking that down. Maria, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling us a little bit more about Applicant Lab and talking a little bit about how MBA applicants can use all the great resources out there to successfully navigate the application process. If people want to test out Applicant Lab, where should they go?
1: Thanks for asking. They should go to applicantlab.com. I have a a trial that will give you access to a couple of the different pieces so you can try it out for yourself. And also, should you upgrade and decide within a week of of kicking the tires that it's just not for you. I totally get it. Like I've said, it its isn't the best product for everyone. It's a great product for a lot of people, but it's not given your learning style or whatever. So if you test it out and it's not for you, no problem. Refunds given, i I'd much rather have you allocate that money to something that will help you if my product's not the right fit for you.
0: Great, thank you so much, Maria. Hi everyone, LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to MBA podcast.